The following is a message by Dr. Peter Jones from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Well, so that I won't eat into your uh, snack time later, I'm going to start right away. I'd ask you to stand. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture and then bring you a message from the Lord on it. It is uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I'll be reading the first 11 verses. This is God's Word. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture. We pray as we read it and expound it that you will bless it to our souls and may Jesus be uplifted through it. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm focusing uh, on verse 8 of this amazing text, uh, which reads, Last of all, The Greek is eschaton de pantone. As to one untimely born, hospere to ectromati, he appeared also to me, opthe camoi. I was drawn to this text with a certain number of questions in mind. Is there strong exegetical evidence for the closing of the period of revelation was the first one. In order to know this question, has the faith really once for all been delivered to the saints? And in a sense, even more theologically, relating to the sermon I preached last semester on 1 Corinthians 3.10, when Paul says, I laid a foundation, can we be sure that this foundation really is definitive? What does Paul mean when he says this? So, uh, inevitably, I have three points. What is the meaning of this intriguing term, eschaton? What is Paul teaching theologically through this term? 
and what are the implications for us? Well, first of all, what is the meaning of this term? We used to say in England, Howell Jones will remember, as a term of derision, you are last. Uh, we meant by that someone had no importance at all. But then, of course, we have the other expression as you bring Dennis Johnson onto the platform here after all the other professors have given lectures and you say, last but not least. And there you're implying <laughs> that the last one is the most important. So you have this ambiguity in the term eschaton. You indeed have it in Scripture. Jeremiah describes Babylon as the least of the nations, but the term eschaton, eschatos, is used. In uh, Luke 14, Jesus speaks of the lowest places, and again, the term last is used. So clearly, the context has to tell us if the term last means least, or if it means chronologically last. And there's an awful lot of implications riding on that resolution to this problem. Is it then last or least? Many New Testament scholars love the idea of leastness, especially the existentialist liberals. And uh, someone like Bultmann actually comes out and says in print that this whole text of 15.1 through 11 <laughs> does not belong to the original authentic kerygma. It shouldn't be there. Paul should not be making applications or references to historical events. And so, of course, when he says, last of all to me, he's clearly saying, I'm the least. I'm the one who feels the need of God's grace. This, of course, is a stunning example of the liberal, liberal ability to make nonsense sound like deep erudition. Because in spite of what the great king of liberalism of the last century said, Paul describes this whole pericope in these terms. First of all, he says it's of first importance. Did you notice that? This is not an authentic part of the kerygma, says Bultmann. Paul says it's of first importance. It's the gospel in which you stand. It is, in fact, the most original written kerygma that we have in the entire New Testament from probably the first decade of the church in Jerusalem. It's an amazing piece of literature that we have before us that blows out of the water any of this Rubbish about Gnosticism being the first expression of Christianity and then orthodoxy derived later on. In the context, eschaton de pantone cannot mean least. It must mean last. Here are the reasons I give. When you look in the context, Paul uses the term eschatos Three times. He talks about the last Adam in verse 45 of this chapter. That's not the least. He talks about the last enemy in verse 26. 
That's not the least of our enemies. <laughs> it is indeed the final enemy. He speaks about the last trumpet. Now, some of you may play the trumpet, and we could describe your playing as some of the least serious expositions of that art. But this is indeed the definitive sign of the end of human history. Then in 2 Timothy 3.1, Paul speaks about the last days. So in the context, we have chronological usages of this term. But then, of course, the context of the text itself. Paul gives us a series of events that are logically and chronologically tied together. Christ died, was buried. You, you have to die before you're buried, generally speaking. Indeed, that's the proof that he died. It's a beautiful thing about this text. You have two statements and then two proofs. Christ died and was buried. He was raised and appeared. Those second statements are actually the proof of the first. But they're obviously necessarily chronological. Was buried, was raised, appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500, then to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me. I don't think there's any way of eliminating the chronological meaning of this text. And I bring to your attention a text that's very similar to it in terms of structure. It's Mark 12, 18 through 23. This is the story about the woman who lost uh, her husband and a whole series of men had to marry her in order to reproduce the line of her family. And you have, there were seven brothers, the first, Ho Protos, the second, Ho Deuteros, the third, Ho Tritos. And then you get to the woman, and this is what it says, Eschaton Panton. The same term that Paul uses is here found to end a series. Now, she is the definitive last of that series. There are no more women to marry. All the brothers have now died. This is an event that begins, has a series of events within it, and then has a final, you might say, consummation. And she, of course, is not the least of those eight people. She's a doughty woman who undergoes enormous difficulty. Not the least, she is the last. Perhaps, though, the most devastating argument against the least is that this particular use of the adjective, now tighten your seatbelts, this use of the adjective is actually an adverb. Eschaton, that is to say, the accusative of adjectives can function as an adverb. And this is the way it functions in this text. It's not an adjective of uh, quality describing Paul, but an adjective of time describing the redemptive historical event of Christ appearing to Paul. So you can't say this act of Christ is least in any sense. It is indeed chronological. So Paul is making a historical chronological claim 
I believe, to his rightful place in the original group of eyewitnesses, in particular as the final member of the apostles. What is Paul teaching here? How, what can we draw out of this technical stuff? Please forgive that. But you know, sometimes to expound the word of God, you have to dig into the technical side, as Howell Jones does for us every week. Paul's goal, and this is what his teaching is theologically, is to lift up Jesus. We preach not ourselves, he says, but Christ Jesus as Lord, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. The foundation is Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 3, 11. Thus, the creed he cites centers on the Lord Jesus as both the subject and the object of the faith once delivered to the saints. This most ancient creed of the church is based upon the person and atoning work of Christ on his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his appearances of which he is the sovereign initiator. You see, the whole creed focuses on the redemptive work of Jesus himself. Thus, his appearance to Paul is our Savior bringing to an end his redemptive work. I remember reading as a student the work of Oscar Kuhlmann. Some of you don't even read him anymore. A brilliant Swiss exegete, probably a Bartian. But he made a, a most profound statement that I have always remembered. Against an argument that he was having with the Roman Catholic Church, he said this, the apostolate belongs not to the period of the church, but to the time of the incarnation. Isn't that amazing? When you think of the implications of that, thus the final appearance of Christ to Paul as the one untimely born completes Christ's incarnational work. And by it lays the foundations for the church that Jesus is building for the rest of history. Now, you may wonder how one can be so affirmative here. Maybe Paul is just making a sort of circumstantial argument. As far as I know, I'm the last. <laughs> and there, there are a number of uh, scholars who take that position that Paul was simply, you know, uh, hypothetically thinking about things, and that's what he knew. But I would suggest to you that for, well, easily three reasons, Paul is not sort of just speculating or giving a little piece of what he thought was the case. For these reasons, what he says, note this, is specific, it's creedal, and it is prophetic. Specific, creedal, prophetic. First of all, it's specific, he speaks of all the apostles. He seems to know them all. He refers to himself not as an abortion, but as the abortion. So he's aware of all the original witnesses and of his specific place 
as this one untimely born, sometimes translated abortion, within that group. So there's nothing sort of speculative or circumstantial here, just on that level. In the second place, though, what he's saying is creedal. Paul is not writing an offhand report of some kind of historical anecdotes of what he sort of knew about the earlier times. He is actually aware of his place in a significant way among these early witnesses because he is actually writing himself into this creedal document. Don't you try this. I believe Paul is writing himself into the earliest creed of New Testament times. It's interesting, this creed does not only contain the facts about the death and resurrection of Jesus. There is an essential and not to be missed addition. Namely, in verse 5, you read, and he appeared to Cephas. All scholars admit that this is part of the original creed. And you see, if you keep reading on, everything else that's said is grammatically tied to that statement. All the other appearances, then, are part of this initial part of the creed, which finds a place for the appearances of Christ. Which thus comes to an end, as according to Paul, with the statement, last of all, he appeared to me. We were saying the Nicene Creed a couple of weeks ago in church. And it seemed to me that the Nicene Creed had clearly borrowed from this text when it says he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered and was buried... And the third day rose again according to the scriptures. But then I was disappointed to remember the Nicene Creed continues and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father. The Nicene Creed misses out the appearances. What the earliest text, the earliest creed of the New Testament has our more formal creeds do not have, and maybe that's why the doctrine of the apostolate is somewhat missing. Paul is writing himself into this creed chronologically, syntactically, and theologically. I said also he's speaking prophetically, and I'd better speak prophetically, too, in the sense of speaking quickly. Uh, he understands his role as prophesied in Scripture. When he uses the term a verse or two later, I labored not in vain, his grace to me was not in vain. He is alluding actually to Isaiah 49.6. His whole thinking about the apostolate, his place in it, is determined by this Old Testament prophecy about the ministry of the servant. You remember that ministry. Paul sees his own apostolate as a fulfillment of the ministry of the servant of Isaiah. And the servant of Isaiah, you remember, was sent first to Israel 
and faced opposition and became discouraged and said, I've labored in vain. And then verse 6 of 49 says, God, we're sending you to the nations to be a light to the ends of the earth. You know, if you read, and I can't do it now, but if you read in Romans, you see Paul, Romans 14, uh, 10, you see Paul working out this exegesis of Isaiah 49 in terms of the early history of the apostolate, how the original apostles were sent to Israel, and Israel refused them. And then he says, I magnify my own ministry to the nations. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And then, of course, the whole of Israel will be saved. In Acts, Paul says this. Remember, he went to the synagogue in Acts and preached to the Jews, and they rejected him. And this is what he says in Acts And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to the Jews. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Paul sees that moment as a turning away from those who are first to those who are last. And you get this amazing uh, gospel parallelism between the apostle who is the abortion, going to those who were low me, and sort of bringing to fulfillment those who were apostles before me, the pillars who go to Israel, which is the holy root. And you have this wonderful expression in the actual events of the early history of the apostolate of the fulfillment of Isaiah 49, 6. I'm on my last page. What are the implications for us? Well, first of all, we have the finished and sure foundation of the apostolic testimony. This act of Christ establishing Paul as the last apostle gives to the church the finished work and sure foundation of the apostolic testimony. In the second place, we can say some useful things about the canon. I would argue that the canon is not the result of the church's pragmatic decisions, nor even of some special inspired moment, but it is the intentional and inevitable direct result of Christ's incarnational ministry. Third, we have a sense of the completed message of Scripture. This text of Paul recalls another text of equal importance, namely Genesis 1 to 2, 2. A series of chronological divine acts introduced by the Vav consecutive, which I made sure could be translated then, Joshua. And so you have a text that has a beginning, in the beginning, a series of divine acts, then then, then the first day there was light, and the evening and the morning were the first day. This series finishes with a kind of last act, Genesis 2, 2. On the seventh day, you could almost say, last of all, God finished his work 
that he had done and rested on the seventh day. So that the whole of Scripture really gives us a sure word about the completedness of revelation, the completion of creation, the completion of redemption with the cry of Jesus, it is finished. And of course, the finished work of redemption with the last apostle. Well, the fourth application is our response. My two sermons of of the two semesters have focused on the foundation laying that Paul assures us has taken place. But I want you to realize that this foundation is not a comfy church porch or deck with easy chairs for theological and communal reflection and cigar smoking. It is indeed the stone Daniel saw cut out by no human hand that struck the pagan image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces and became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. It is, you see, the rock on which Christ is building his church, which will batter the pagan monistic gates of hell like nothing else rising up in our time. Christ is the Lord of the church when he is building it on that rock and that rock is preached to the church and to the world. And this is our only hope. Is it your only hope? If it is, can you say with me, my hope is built on nothing less and Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust a sweeter frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.